I'm Tony Remus, and this is Tony Talks Back. You, dear listener, have the right to remain silent. I mean, you don't have to, but I think it would make listening to this show a little easier. Anyway, today let's talk about rights. What are they? Where do they come from? No matter political leaning, it's probably the biggest buzzword in the political sphere. Whether someone is advocating for rights they believe they already have, or lobbying to enact new rights not yet officially the law. It seems we would scarcely have political arguments, if not for the concept of rights in the first place. As an example, a common argument to hear in the good old USA is that over the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, the text of which reads, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the rights of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The right of the people to keep and bear arms. What does that mean? I have a right to, I have the ability to, I have the privilege to keep and bear arms? Granted by what? Who has bestoweth upon me this supreme power to keep and bear arms, should I choose to exercise it? Is it the government that gives rights? After all, they did create the law in the first place. But there is a case to be made for the answer, no. Your rights are the government's responsibility. It's their job to see that your rights are respected. But more than that, your rights are everyone else's responsibility as well. I cannot infringe upon your rights and must bear the duty that comes with that. Let's take a brief venture into the history of rule and duty. Early humanity was, in a sense, more symbolic than we are today. Concepts we use in language, like courage, loyalty, betrayal, and leadership, were actually embodied in tales of mythology. You have stories of the Norse gods, Thor the protector, Loki the betrayer, Mimir the wise, and Odin ruler and king over all. In the earliest of what we can reasonably call human civilization, ancient Babylon, the ruler of the gods became a figure known as Marduk. Marduk had eyes all around his head and could speak magic words. The story goes he ascended the throne of the gods after defeating a terrible monster. This story forms the basis for what we can call divine right. The ruler of a society embodies its symbols. In the words of Dr. Jordan Peterson, the king of Babylon was a good king insofar as he was a good Marduk. We see the same theme in the traditions of China. The mandate of heaven, Tianming, sides with the just emperor of China. Disasters are thought to demonstrate that the current ruler has lost the mandate. They are no longer a good Marduk. They do not embody heaven. By the way, the Communist Party of China would very much like for its citizens to forget about the Mandate of Heaven, because having such a mandate in existence implies that the ruling power can lose the mandate. Insofar as one has this mandate, or this divine right, it becomes the duty of the citizens to obey their rule. To do otherwise would be to defy the gods, or heaven. And it didn't stop with the birth of Jesus and our entrance into the Common Era, thinkers as late as the 17th century defended the divine right to rule from a Christian perspective. 
One such man, Sir Robert Filmer, did so by using biblical scripture as justification for the divine right of kings. Men are not born free, nor are men born equal. Adam, from the biblical story of Genesis, was given dominion over all the earth, including his fellow man. To disobey the divine right of kings, according to Filmer, is to disobey God's will. Thomas Hobbes, who we covered last episode, took a rather different tack. Hobbes rejected that one man could be said to be supremely powerful to others, because none of us can resist the power of a mob. Furthermore, in a state of nature, every man has a right to everything, because man has the right to self-preservation, and all things can be put to use towards that goal. The function of a ruler is not as the embodiment of divine wisdom. Rather, it is to enforce the social contract between people to respect each other's agreed-upon rights. This is the world and era into which John Locke was born. An Englishman and considered the world's first liberal, Locke was an intellectual powerhouse and sometimes entertainingly funny in his writing. Locke changed the world in more ways than one, but as this season is about political philosophy, and this episode about rights specifically, we will discuss Locke's two treatises on government. Locke's first treatise attacks Sir Robert Filmer and the divine right to rule, and completely dismantles it, in my opinion. Not all of Locke's writing is exactly um, engaging, and we'll skip over some of the specific intricacies Locke makes a point of arguing for. Suffice to say that Locke does not buy the biblical interpretation of divine rule at all. After dismantling the idea of divine right to rule, it may be supposed that a man such as John Locke would not be content with simply tearing down an inferior argument. Locke's second treatise contains his positive account of a just society and government. There are many moving parts, and Locke builds them somewhat out of order. I will go through them in the procedure I think easiest to understand. One fundamental question to ask for all systems of government is this. Are we born free, or are we born as slaves? Divine right naturally assumes us to be slaves to the divine, embodied in human form, in an absolute ruler. But even in society without kings, humans are quite clearly not born capable of acting in a free manner. We can't act as we will as babies, nor even as adolescents. Even if we could, we would not typically last two weeks on our own. There is a powerful argument to be made that humans are in fact born subservient to their parents. But, crucially, this dependency cannot be as a ruler exerts on their servants, nor as a master to their slaves. That would be impossible, as your child will eventually grow up and have children of their own, to which it does not seem to follow that you gain absolute power over as well. And if they don't have children, you... What? Remain the tyrant over your child their entire life? This is not a relation of rule and right, but of obligation. Your parents are due obedience and respect, for the simple fact of them fulfilling their obligation to raise and nurture you. But on the flip side, Locke argued we are born with the right to life. In other words, the right to be nurtured to the point where we can take care of ourselves. And this is the ground which Locke ultimately rests everything on. We are humans. 
This is how we survive. We not only have a right, but a duty to survive. And a key to doing so is in creating and raising the next generation. Parents must raise and take care of their offspring for the betterment of the species. It is only natural. Become a patron of Tony Talks Back and get exclusive access to bonus content and a private RSS feed where you can download episodes and listen on your favorite podcast platform ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash tonytalksback or click on the link down below. Considering the bare facts of our existence, we are all born, as it were, naked and helpless into the world. And our capacities are remarkably similar among the many faces of humanity. It is almost self-evident that we are all born equal. Whatsoever the human condition is, it is something that must apply to all humanity. And because Locke dismantled the idea of a divine ruler, we are necessarily born free. Our freedom is an intrinsic part of what we are. That doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as slaves and tyrants, there clearly are. But our natural state, our natural right, is to be free. This is the thinking which paved the way for the American Revolution. We owe some amount of respect to those who raised us, and the society and culture which we were raised in. But there is no right which one man has to another man's freedom. So it can be that men have the right to choose their form of government, or even choose the state of nature. If they are unsatisfied, if they feel as though their rights are not being respected, there is no justification why they cannot form their own new government and reject the tyranny of the former. Masters do not have a right to their slaves, only unless the slaves choose freely and willingly to be slaves, which is kind of a contradictory statement, but I won't dwell on it. This does not mean that humans are free from the consequences of their actions, because though it was argued the tyranny of the English crown over America was great, there yet were certain undeniable benefits of English rule. The structure of society and government, the material wealth, the security of laws and protections granted. One cannot have these benefits of a certain society without agreeing in part to submit to it. This is what Locke's government is for. It will protect your rights, and allow you to benefit along with all others in society, so long as you give up certain unlimited freedoms. And the reason you must give up your unlimited freedom, we have seen before in Hobbes. In the state of nature, every man has the right to everything. But this is to have no right at all, when someone can take away everything you have for their own self-interest. One way to phrase it is in the light of positive versus negative freedom. The state of nature grants total positive freedom, but it does so to everyone. You have the freedom to do all, but one person's positive freedom destroys your own. On the other hand, negative freedom is the freedom to not have something happen to you. And Locke argues to have a maximally free society, we must agree to give up this right to everything and respect three natural rights of every human. Life, liberty, and property. That last one, property, might seem a bit out of place from the first two. 
but Locke argues property is as essential a natural right as life and liberty. When you think of property, probably the first thing you think about is an item or material substance that you can touch and manipulate and belongs to you. But there's a more fundamental example we can use. Yourself. Your own body is your property, according to Locke. You have the right to do with it as you will. Now you can see why property is as basic a right as life and liberty. One must own their own life in order to be free. Additionally, one must have the right to both their own labor and the fruits of their labor, and to keep what they each earn and build, either on their own or through contract with others. It wouldn't make sense to Locke to say that you own yourself, but every action you perform and its effects are not yours. The process of turning material into property begins with pulling it out of the state of nature, a state where men share in common the ability to make use of such material for the preservation of the species. To remove it from that state is to mix your labor with it and join it together so that it becomes your property. And no one has the right to take away your property once it is yours, no matter if you choose to sell it or transform it into some other good. This is not to say that Locke was anti-tax in the extreme. For to maintain freedom and the security of a society, it naturally takes some amount of wealth. And the extent to which that wealth is taken and given to the service of society is a negotiable part of any government. But it must be taken with the consent and permission of the governed. If one rejects the demands society places on them, they are free to exercise their natural right to dissolve their contract with society and leave, but they cannot expect to take any benefits with them. Yet all of this talk of rights still leaves room for justice to be dealt. If your rights have been violated by another, it is the duty of the civil society to rectify that injustice. By violating your rights, the culprit has committed themselves to the state of nature, thereby forfeiting their natural right to life, liberty, and property, all of which may be seized in order to remedy the situation. And there is one point Locke makes which I find illuminating in the context of the current political situation and talks of racial justice. Suppose that someone has done you wrong. Suppose that that someone also has a spouse and children. The fact they have violated your rights entitles you to just compensation. However, their children also have the right to be adequately raised and nourished. The sins of the father do not pass to the children. So insofar as there are two conflicting parties with rights to certain property, no party is held in favor inherently. Instead, the remedy is to, as much as can be done, distribute resources to whatever party is most in need. Because that is the best way to service our duty and right to survival. Ancestral guilt is not a thing in Locke's world of individual liberty. If your ancestor did wrong, you do not bear the consequences of that. However, the property of the ancestor that infringed might needs go to help those that suffered from the injustice in order to preserve life. One other point I'd like to make is to circle back to the beginning of the episode. I discussed the right to remain silent, and also the right to keep and bear arms. These rights are obviously not the same as the ones Locke 
talks about. They are, in a way, derivative from Locke's rights. Society, American society, has agreed to respect these rights as part of the societal contract. But life, liberty, and property are something more, something deeper. They derive from human nature itself. But that does not make the Second Amendment an inferior right. If it's part of society's agreement, it is an injustice to have it violated. To briefly sum up John Locke, mankind is born free and equal. Our natural rights come from human nature, the most fundamental of which are the right to life, liberty, and property. These ideas, in no small part, form the basis for liberal democracies across the world. I salute you, John Locke. And I hope this episode has made clear that we have a lot to be grateful for. I'm Tony Remus. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like, subscribe, review, wherever you're listening. Share it with your friends and become a patron on Patreon or consider a one-time donation on PayPal. Take it easy.